You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Mosaic Moment on the PPI Radically Pragmatic Podcast. I'm Jasmine Stoughton, director of The Mosaic Project. For those of you who don't know, Mosaic is a project at the Progressive Policy Institute that aims to put more women at the forefront of policymaking by empowering our experts with the tools and connections needed to engage with the media and lawmakers on today's toughest policy challenges. So, Last month, I, along with 12 Mosaic experts and congressional staffers, traveled to London, Brussels, and Berlin to meet with top policy leaders on a number of issues, but most specifically tech and economics, with a bit of international relations and workforce development policy sprinkled throughout. On today's episode of the Mosaic Moment, you'll get to hear from three Mosaic alumni who joined us on this transatlantic delegation, and you'll learn what policies they took away from their time abroad. Up first is Joanna Ain, who is an Associate Policy Director at Prosperity Now. Thank you so much for joining me, Joanna. We're going to just dive right in. What is one UK or European policy that you found particularly interesting or surprising and why? Thanks, Jasmine. It was amazing to hear Estonia come up again and again and again. I think it was like three or four times throughout the trip, and we weren't even in Estonia. And it kept coming up in completely um, different conversations and different meetings. Um, I think maybe in the UK, um, in Brussels and in Berlin. Uh, And that was amazing to me, right? We have this tiny country, 1.3 million people, and we keep hearing about it. So what we kept hearing was that Estonia is like this digital champion. They're doing this incredible work. And I found that really interesting. Um, We talk a lot about at Prosperity Now, we talk a lot about free tax preparation, how to uh, best get uh, low and moderate income families and individuals linked up with uh, VITA sites, volunteer income tax assistance sites. How can we best get benefits and cash to low income families? Um, How can we uh, close the racial wealth divide. Like, what what avenues do we have to do that? So that's our goal. But and Estonia seems to be doing an amazing job in creating uh, connectivity and creating services that really um, go straight to their population. Ninety nine percent of government services are provided online. Ninety nine percent of their population has this like government electronic ID. Um, 98% of medical prescriptions are issued digitally. Like they're really doing this incredible job with uh, creating such, again, such a connection between the population and these government services that um, I really came back from the trip saying, wow, we need to take a closer look at this. Like, what are they doing? How are they doing it? How can we do it in the United States? And I I, I understand, and we, we had some conversations about this during the trip, like, it's a very different country, way mm-hmm. smaller population. 
Um, but I think taking some of the things learned from Estonia, um, how can we center these services around this kind of human-based design? Um, what can we learn from the way that they're doing things, even if it would be a little different if we did it in the U.S.? But really, how can we make things accessible, simple, and safe for just, mm -hmm. just a wide range of our population? Um, thinking about uh, other kind of conversations that came up in this vein, we're thinking about when you're creating these uh, services, whether through different technologies or what have you, you need to think of um, who's implementing the services, the people who are implementing the services. So right. we don't want services just implemented by like the same person across the board. We want to think like, how can these, um, the people creating these services, how can we bring in people of different backgrounds and experiences? Um, how can we have a really uh, diverse group around the table, whether it's race, socioeconomic backgrounds, ages? Um, and that's something that we, I felt we, we spoke about a lot, both uh, kind of internally within our, our uh, U.S. group, as well as uh, with, with broader conversations around um, the places we visited in Europe. Yeah, it struck me too that so many of the meetings we had, Estonia was brought up again and again as this digital champion. Um, and maybe it's just that I'm not I'm not a tech policy expert, and so I'm not in a lot of conversations around how we can make um, specifically like GovTech more efficient um, and more integrated in the lives of of everyday Americans. Um, but I really haven't heard anyone here in America talk about Estonia. You know. We had meetings with these high-level women, but they were just talking about their everyday lives and their experience using the technology. Uh, and that was super fascinating to me that it's not its not just that these are expert women who are brilliant and really well-versed in the policy. They're also moms and daughters and caretakers. Uh, we met with predominantly women and hearing the ways that they were, that their lives were made easier by this technology um, and just how seamlessly it's integrated in their in their everyday lives was really interesting. Again, as you said, seeing both folks who, whether they were parents or caregivers, how this was impacting their lives, the people of Estonia. Um, and we were talking to people who primarily lived uh, away from Estonia and how even if they lived away from Estonia and their families were back in Estonia, how mm -hmm. these integrated systems affect their lives and made things like as you're saying, like caregiving so much easier, keeping an eye on their parents, um, the medical pieces. Uh, it, it was it was astounding to me. And uh, I too hadn't heard anything about Estonia before this trip. So um, that was that was incredible. And I you know, that's the point of trips like this, I always think, right? This is like a cross cultural um, exchange of information. And we were hearing um, you know, for me, relevant to the work I do, hearing about a country who seemingly is doing such an incredible job and thinking, wait, what can we take? What are the learnings we can take in the U.S.? How can we think about um, policy in the U.S.? What can we change? What can nonprofits do? Um, that's the point of trips like this. And mm -hmm. uh, that was just just a, a fabulous part of um going on this trip and thinking through these issues uh, with with other women. 
Thank you so much, Joanna, for hopping on the podcast and sharing your main takeaway or one big takeaway that you got from the trip. Um, I really appreciate you uh, joining the podcast. Thanks, Jasmine. Great talking to you. Next up is Dr. Fallon Wilson, Vice President of Policy at the Multicultural Media and Telecommunication Internet Council. What I find to be most interesting about what we, I, I enjoyed the discussions around digital upskilling and workforce. I, that's my jam, that's my jam stuff. Um, and I'm excited to know that, that the European Union in particular has a great commitment to making sure that they're going to build up the skill sets of their, of their country people. And so that was encouraging to hear that they're going to dedicate, and they just launched it maybe about a week ago, actually, their year of digital skills. And so I am interested to know how that looks among the member states. How does it filter? Um, and what does it look like for member states who have more immigration? And, and what does that look like when it's more monolithic? In the, in the demographics of the country on who gets resources um, to digitally adopt types of behaviors that allow them to flourish in a new digital economy, in a new digital world. So the notion mm -hmm. of like Europe focusing on the individual, like a year of digital skills for the individual mm -hmm. versus um, a discussion on infrastructure in the state, it's just, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think perhaps there, perhaps there's something to be said about situating like the problem and the solution centered on communities and individuals versus infrastructure where you have to go through states. That was a good comparison to um, the way they've tackled the digital divide in Europe versus how we're approaching it now in America. I never thought about that, how it's like they are looking at skills and literacy in a way where that's like a side conversation here. I mean, we are, right? But the most of the money in the 65 billion, the 48 billion goes to infrastructure, middle mile, build out deployment. Exactly. But there's, you know, NTIA and amazing organizations like mine and others made sure our rulemaking talked about equity and inclusion. Um, but only like 2.75 billion is for digital equity. And that includes adoption and digital skills. Geographically, do you think that the EU has an advantage uh, to deploy a model like you're talking about, like a year of digital inclusion, um, whereas yes. the U.S. is focusing on more of more of, you know, a rural cent urban divide mm -hmm. uh, and deploying it as, a, as an infrastructure package? What I know historically about Europe and the development of the European Union is that you have so many different countries having to figure out, at least emotionally, spiritually, physically, and economically, how to work together. What are our, what are our goals? What are our no's? Um, how do we think about trade? How do we think about commerce? How do we think about surveillance? And each of them having to let go of ego to meet in middle grounds in a way that our states don't have to do. Does that make any sense? When, I feel like if you've had to go through that process, and it is a process, right? You, you're giving up some of your sovereignty to be part of this larger body. I believe that that opens you up to be more collaborative. And, and because of the historical relationships of countries 
over centuries. Um, I think that being able to do a year of digital skills and upskilling could actually work there, primarily because everyone has gone through the ego moment. The U.S. is different, and some states still operate like they are their own country, Texas and Florida. Um, as an example, there are still states that don't do Medicaid because they hold the funds, right? Because yes. they are following the line, not the needs of, across the state that would need those dollars to ensure that people have proper health care. And so for me, my my concern is even though I, we have worked on public comments, we have worked on Congress, we have worked on advocacy, NTIA is doing a great job, FCC is doing a great job. Um, I think we probably should have wrote more strongly into the rulemaking that you have to establish like a diverse, inclusive, like advisory board for each state just to even get the planning done. I think we should, we have encouraged it, it's encouraged in the language, but I don't know if we, I don't know, I'm really concerned actually. So it's interesting, but yeah, that's, that's it. That's super interesting. I really, really appreciate you coming on the podcast and let's let's definitely talk soon. And last but certainly not least, we have Dr. Liz Wilkie, who is a principal economist at Gusto. So Liz, what is one UK or European policy that you found particularly interesting or surprising and why? Yeah, thanks, Jasmine. And I will also say I, I've picked one, but I loved the entire trip. I feel like I learned a lot. The thing that really strikes me is I'm I'm very interested not just in economic growth you know, as an economist, but I am also interested in sort of how that growth is shared and how the gains of that growth are distributed, right, between industry, for workers, across regions, et cetera. And one of the things that really struck me is that we were in Berlin in a session with an organization called Industry 4.0, which is sort of tasked with generating the, the roadmap and the implementation of the sort of modernization and the digitization of industries. And so we were specifically talking about the automotive industry, which is a very complicated, highly technologically advanced right set of supply chains that spans multiple countries and, and sort of multiple societies. And what I, what I really noticed out of this and that I really think speaks to the European experience in general is the the formalized conversation about how to achieve that shared goal of modernization and digitization and productivity-led growth, how to achieve that shared goal in a coordinated way between government and industrial representation and workers and union representation. So I'll, I'll give the example that, you know, they're talking about the working group Mm -hmm. for industry 4.0 and there is an entire working group staffed with government and industry and union and worker representatives it's 54 people mm -hmm. who are on this working group to think about that strategy and that roadmap and how to get there and the fact that one that the working group exists but that there are sub working groups right each sort of tasked with their individual lines means that there is a formalized institutionalized process for having the conversation, not just about how we get there, mm -hmm. but what the mutual responsibilities are and the shared roles that everybody has and who has them. It generates mm -hmm. commitment in the process by lots of these stakeholders who are really important, not just to whether or not 
Germany grows or the automotive industry grows, but also how that growth is shared and distributed, right, among people who care about it, right? And it's not just companies, it's workers too. And it's sort of, there are social aspects there that the government cares about. And I think that what really sort of hit me in this meeting is how formalized that process mm -hmm. is and how structured that conversation is in the European experience relative to United States. We think about this process in the United States as being sort of a series of conversations, often between, you know, industrial representation groups and, you know, government legislators. Unions right. obviously are not as strong in the U.S., and so we don't have a lot of formalized places for workers' representatives to sort of be at the table sort of by law and by culture and by practice. And that, I think, was a, is a very big difference uh, between the U.S. and the EU case and you know, sort of what that means in terms of outcomes and, you know, industrial transformation. Yeah, absolutely. And not saying that one is better than the other one system or one way of doing it is better than the other. But I really can't think of um, many, many similarities uh, in the U.S. to what they do at Industry 4.0 and also just in the EU um, generally. I think there's there's also an argument that that would be inefficient, right? Like having more people at the table, would that breed inefficiency or the lack of ability to move forward or come to a consensus? Like just out of curiosity, um, what could we take from that? What How could we take what they're doing and kind of implement it here in America? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I would also agree with you that I'm not saying that one one uh, system is better than another. I think that there are always pros and cons to every choice you make. So I, I would say, I think that the response to the questions about doesn't it inject inefficiency, right, in the process, I would say you have to pick where you want inefficiency, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the benefits of this sort of coordinated process at the beginning is that it, it can be more inefficient. I think that, you know, the, U, the EU has been I think criticized a number of times for sort of moving more slowly, right, than the U.S. can move on some of these issues, although I don't think that's universally true. Um, but but it can take longer, right? You, there's 54 people, right, in this working right. group who sort of all have to come to a shared vision. The flip side of that is that in the United States, when we think about workforce development, you know, we don't have a sort of centralized way to think about what are the skills that industry needs and also mm. how do we create standards and principles that everybody can count on. And so what that does is it leaves a void for other actors to come in. And we've seen that with the development of like Amazon certifications and Google certifications and sort of bigger companies are filling that vacuum of sort of credible standards for workforce mm -hmm. development for these 21st century skills. And that's just sort of how the U.S. is responding to that. But that creates inefficiency, right? Because that means many companies, right, are creating yeah. different standards for what they need, which is useful, but not, you know, it doesn't serve everybody, right, to sort mm -hmm. of have these. And, you know, the extent to which they're translatable from one context to another is really unknown. Versus if you have a set of standards sort of at the national level that an entire industrial group agrees, right, these are the things that we need, that reduces the inefficiency sort of later down the road. So I think you just sort of choose where your inefficiency is. And like mm -hmm. I said, I don't think one is necessarily better than the other in terms of workforce development, but they're very different approaches to um, like standard setting, which is really important in workforce development and skilling. That's super interesting. Um, and that's a great way to think about it too. Like 
the inefficiency on the front end or the back end and how does it impact overall um, the industry as a whole. Thank you so much, Liz, for sharing your insights. Um, I really appreciate you hopping on the podcast and I hope to talk to you soon. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Jasmine. And that is a wrap on today's episode, exploring our transatlantic policy takeaways. You can find links to all things Mosaic in the show notes, along with Joanna, Liz, and Fallon's Twitter handles. We'll be back on the Radically Pragmatic podcast next month with a new episode of the Mosaic Moment. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.